Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Millsoff, senior editor here at Billboard and Broadway expert here. For those of you who are already regular listeners of this podcast, you may notice there has been a little hiatus recently. That is purely because if you live in New York, you know everybody has been sick lately, including podcast guests and your podcast host. Uh, But I am on the mend and the podcast is back. Hooray. So at this point, We're accustomed to seeing stars from far beyond the world of theater singing on Broadway stages and on movie screens. In the past few years alone, actors like Hugh Jackman, Neil Patrick Harris, Ben Platt, and Michelle Williams have all had major musical theater moments. They also happen to share one other major thing in common. They've all studied with a woman who, in the Broadway community, has attained what I would call almost legend status, vocal coach Liz Kaplan. I've been covering theater for over a decade now, and over the years, I've heard Liz's name from practically all of the more prominent folks I've interviewed, usually in a kind of, oh, I don't know if you've heard of Liz Kaplan, but I never could have done this performance without her kind of context. It's at the point where I was starting to wonder if she was a real person. Uh, But it's not only movie stars who Liz has worked with. You would be hard-pressed to find a leading actor of any kind in the Broadway community these days who hasn't sought her unique and ultra-personal approach to vocal training at some point. So I I decided that it was about time that I meet this apparently magical woman who helped Ben Platt survive Dear Evan Hansen and helped transform Neil Patrick Harris into Hedwig, among other magnificent musical feats. We had a lengthy, extremely enjoyable chat about how she developed her teaching technique, her experiences with her varied, well-known clients, and some of the more unusual aspects of taking care of the voice, including the mystery of why Broadway stars shouldn't be eating pizza. In my humble opinion, this is a must-listen for any theater fan, but really for anyone who wants to know how someone gets up on stage and belts to the rafters each night in a show. Liz. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm excellent. I definitely have no respiratory ailments at the moment. (laughs) It's a very appropriate day for me to talk to you. (laughs) We'll cure them as we speak. Yes, I know. But we'll end the the podcast with me being miraculously cured just by sitting here with you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, I've been excited to meet you for quite some time. So it's exciting to see you in the flesh. You're a real person and not just this like (laughs) ghost name that I've heard from many people over the years. (laughs) I know. I'm telling even my husband says, can I book a lesson with you so I could see you? <laughs> well, I don't I don't understand how you have any free time because it seems like literally everyone on Earth is your students at some point or another. I think honestly, and I can't even say that I've mastered the art of time management, but somehow or other between an assistant and the iPhone, it all works out. It's, it's amazing. I know I don't totally get it, but you're, <laughs> but you're here in front of us and you seem to be alive. Um, so... <laughs> I know that you realized 
unusually early on in life that coaching was kind of a calling for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would love to hear how did you figure that out and how did you know that you were good at it? That question is so excellent. I think that I never, especially for the longest time and probably up until even the past decade out of the 40 that I've been teaching, 40 years I've been teaching, did I realize not necessarily that I was good at it, but I I started out working with people so young and I just did it. So I guess that is as close to a calling as you could possibly describe. When I was uh, growing up, I played piano and sang for myself by the t- from the time I was like five or six. And then I found myself uh, playing piano and music directing summer stock growing up in my local theater and then in high school musicals. Um, I got to play and coach people when it wasn't my year, and then during my senior year of high school, I was able to star in my musical, but I also, at the side, was working with everybody else in the musical (laughs) and coaching them on their tunes as well, because it was just something I did, and people knew I played and could understand the voice. Mm. So it was not, I I actually have to say, I don't even think I thought about it. Hmm. So I kind of had a full business from the time I was 14. That's amazing. And I think that, you know, so often when when I have thought of vocal coaches in the past, I always assume, well, it's someone who wanted to be a performer and maybe it didn't work out. And, you know, they, they knew enough to teach others. But it, it seems unusual to me that from the beginning, coaching was what you wanted to do. Yeah. Interestingly, though, I think I did have the dream in quotes, um, <laughs> about performing because Barbara Streisand was one of my heroes growing up and I listened to every record that she had and would also, strangely, also glue myself to how she was singing and I think I was listening to her technique which was really extraordinary and really, um, she was like the first to do what she did with her voice which was like a perfect blend of her chest voice and her, her mixed quality and you never really knew if she was singing in different qualities. It was almost a seamless voice. Hmm. So I think I was able to listen and also emulate that quality, which I think has really benefited myself in my singing voice and also my students because I get how to keep seamlessly moving through registers. So people don't have to be like, oh, I can't belt or I can't mix. It's like, no, you could do like one line. Everything is, you know, similar with emotion attached. So I I know I was in my senior class musical, senior high school musical, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be an actress and I'm going to sing and I'm going to do all that. But I When I went to college and I was a voice major and was studying uh, classical music, which I had never had any intention of singing, um, I started actually thinking that I liked the idea of how it was explained and how it was done. And when it was explained poorly, how I needed to get myself out of that and into a healthier approach. Mm -hmm. So I think I did somehow or other in the back of my head um, want to make everyone, every other artist understand how their instrument worked. And that was more important to me and gave me greater satisfaction than applause for my singing voice. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say that the, and we can get into the nitty gritty of what your technique entails, but so much of the way you teach, I gather, has to do not with things that you learn just in the studio and has to do with physical and psychological things that don't come from sitting in front of a piano and la 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 la. Um, So from your experience being coached, were there specific things that you realized, you know, this isn't being taught to me? And this is a better way of going about doing it or, you know, parts oh, wow. of teachers approaches that you've realized eh, this isn't so great for me, actually. Phenomenal question, because I, I can visualize my answer based on <laughs> the past. And what I remember feeling myself when I was when I was taking lessons and studying, you know, quite seriously um, early on was. I remember thinking the way the teachers were speaking to me and the way the exercises were and the way the lessons were delivered, I actually used to think that I could cut my my body off from my shoulders and leave my shoulders, neck and head on a piano and the rest of me could go to like the, the local coffee shop and like have breakfast and coffee and then when it was lesson time over come back and reattach my shoulders and head and neck because I felt like not the rest of my body was participating 
in the instrument as a whole. And it felt narrowed and it felt sort of limited. And then I would go and accompany, since I played piano, I would accompany other students at my music school in their voice lessons to the chagrin of most of the teachers who knew I was a voice major and listen to what the teachers were saying to them. And I had to say to myself, these people are being absolutely given like the big old bums rush as far as nothing that was being said was helpful to them. And it made me start thinking about how the whole body has to help the sound and being strong and, and sort of feeling mindful of your whole uh, body as a breathing organism is, and, and also part of your whole personality and expression had to do with, you know, your full body being able to help you sing and not just, you know, shoulders up. So that's when I started developing my own technique. So what were the kind of first major things that you started integrating that were different from what you were used to? Um, I actually talked years ago to, this is in the beginning, to different practitioners. I talked to dance therapists and people who were primarily using, pardon me, <clears throat> probably primarily using their bodies to express themselves. But they had, some people I spoke to had some really cool ideas about fully moving the body in expression where you felt like the arms were connected to the sternum and the arms were connected to the rib cage and the legs were connected into the hip flexors and the hip flexors were connected up into the diaphragm muscle and ultimately the rib cage and you feel kind of like a whole performer and an artist actually when the whole body is being integrated and then you know years and years later I started apprenticing with uh, uh, acupuncturists and um, physical therapists and even uh, choreographers who were doing modern dance technique which was mm. very physical and actually they included breathing in the work that they did with like across the floor movement and totally, choreography totally. so so I got to see from a perspective of a singer how the dancers might not have been breathing. So I got to sort of say, why don't you take a deep breath before you go across the floor and like let the breath be used as you're moving. But I also got to see how they use their bodies for expression. And I thought this needs to be integrated into the whole artist for the whole artist to feel that they can use everything they've got to perform. Mm hmm. So when you first started integrating this into teaching, were you met with eyebrow raises or um, were people totally on board? Uh, you know, interestingly, I think they were. I mean, I have to really, really <laughs> crank back in my in my my brain retention there. Um, but I do believe that most people would, would be game to try something. And normally, if they didn't, I would say, you know, give it a try. If it doesn't work, you know, we'll think of something else. We'll do something, you know, alternative. And um, but people gave it a shot and mostly felt that they didn't have to work as hard to make sound when other parts of their body were helping propel the oxygen that they needed to make sound. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you are, I, I've heard this before, uh, some people say, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm on board with this, but are you someone who subscribes to the idea that like anyone can be a great singer if they're trained the right way? Or do you think that it's something more specific than that? Yeah, you know, I read this book who, who whose title eludes me at the moment and whose title has eluded me from since I found the book. <laughs> and I remember reading it and thinking, oh, I'm going to give this some thought. But it was a it was an author who had done experiments with sound replication with, you know, sound of like sirens and horns and birds and things like that. And then tried to get people who were convinced they were tone deaf, mm -hmm. that they could make sound. And so there was an entire book of this. And I remember thinking, huh, that makes sense to me. If somebody could hear a siren of a police car and a fire engine and also like crazy sounds and they could actually, whether it was exactly on pitch with the siren itself, but they could make sounds starting from like the bottom and going up top and coming back down, that they could match sound and probably could be taught mm -hmm. to sing. Because if you can hear pitch of anything, I think you could learn to replicate it. Mm -hmm. But the input has to be correct. So for an example, I had a student come to me. He wanted to be a musical theater performer 
desperately he just wanted to be in the chorus of a show even if it was like regional theater in in Booney anywhere mm-hmm. and so he came to me he goes can you teach me to sing and I said let's just see what you've got and I heard that he would I would play a note and he would sing a note and it wasn't the same thing so I said can you hear that this is the note I'm playing and this is the note you're singing and he goes sort of kind of so I said let's have you actually siren down from where you are as if you were siren and come and I went that's the note and so I got him on that note and I made him just like repeatedly sing that pitch and I would mm-hmm. I would play the octave of the note and I'd put the I'd pedal it and like let it echo and let him almost absorb it and so his assignment was every week to go home and just listen to the note, what he was singing, what happened when he reached the note that was correct, and then concentrated on that note, and he ended up having a a career. It took a while, and he goes, how long do you think it'll take? I said, if I were to guess, I would say at least 18 months. To, if you do this rigorously and religiously. And he did it. And he ended up being in, you know, dinner theater, you know, in regional productions of shows. And he made a living. He made a living at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I assume that there are a lot of people out there like me who, you know, I'm a musician, not a vocalist, but I, I have a sense of pitch. I mm-hmm. sing fairly decently, I like to think. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's a big gulf between singing decently and, you know, being Audrey McDonald. <laughs> and right. some of it is having a gift, I'm sure, but um, it's always just seems so difficult to me to get f- from, you know, singing pleasantly on pitch to, like, opening your mouth and your lungs in the way that Broadway performers have to. And having the, you know, electricity and the it factor mm-hmm. and the excitement. But I don't think... I mean, I am, I am convinced that... People can aspire, and I think depending upon how much of an investment they want to make, and how um, you know how they are as far as discipline and dedication to what they want to achieve. I've seen people really surprise me, and people who started out with either me or other teachers, and they were really sort of like maybe they'll end up being in you know choruses of shows, not not necessarily in New York. But ended up working, 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 and ended up, you know, being stars on Broadway. Well, I shall keep the dream alive. <laughs> Definitely do. It's always <laughs> worth it to do that. So I'm not sure if you can remember going back, but was there a high profile person who was like sort of the breakthrough student for you that opened you up to a certain kind of clientele or even someone who before they were big came to you? Whoa. Okay. <laughs> um let me kind of think about this. When when I first was coaching and teaching in New York. I did have several people. Well, I do remember I had I had two people who were in the one was in the this brings us back some time. I want to <laughs> say this is like circa 1980-81. They were in the one was in the singing chorus of uh, Agnes DeMille's uh, Brigadoon and the other was in the dancing chorus because <laughs> That's when they had people who danced and didn't have to sing in a Broadway show, and they had people who sang and didn't have to dance in a Broadway show. Um, So they were my first Broadway people, and actually from there, that's how people started hearing about me. They would talk about their lessons with me, and other people would talk. But I'm trying to think, who was my first... Gosh, I might need to come back to that one. (laughs) I'm actually, I'm, I'm like flipping through the years... Well, oh, you know what? One of the pe- the the person that was a sort of a, a, a semi game changer for me was when uh, Anna Gasteyer hmm. had just finished doing Saturday Night Live, and she was about to do uh, Funny Girl at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. This is I can't even remember the year. It's not that long ago, um, but. Uh, she was referred to me by a music supervisor colleague and friend and said that she really wanted to like get her chops back going because she had done so much wonderful singing in SNL, yes. but not a lot of discipline singing on a week-to-week basis. So mm-hmm. we got to work together, and then she went right from there and then got the Chicago Company of Wicked. And that sort of started opening doors for me, too, because I worked with primarily the entire company mm-hmm. of that cast and then people were starting to move into the Broadway company and I was able to start working with a lot of people doing that as well. Then I think 
it's really funny, but I know there was somebody before this person, but I think one of my first high profile clients was Neil Patrick Harris. Mm-hmm. I was going to say there have to be people before yeah, Neil. <laughs> I'm sure there was. I'm sure there was. My my brain is not allowing me to find it. But Neil was, you know, somebody I had worked with his husband David mm-hmm. for a while because David was doing Gypsy with my friend and student Kate Rinders, and Kate was studying with me. So David came to me through Kate, and then David and Neil had met during that time, <laughs> and somehow or other. When Neil was about to host the Tonys in 2009, which I think was his first Tonys that he hosted, um, David said, you should work with Liz. And and he's like, oh, OK, I'll give it a go. So he came in and we had such a great lesson, had such a great time and basically have been working together ever since. And he was so kind and always referred me to his friends and people that he knew and high profile, you know, with high profiles and everything. So um, that was like I feel like that was like a pretty big tipping point. Mm-hmm. Well, and Hedwig brings up the uh, a bigger question I had for you, which is which I didn't even realize that you have been like the vocal advisor, supervisor for like many entire productions. And that was a role I didn't even know existed. So what does that entail? And it sounds like you get to come in fairly early and almost have like veto power over some elements of a show. Well, that was interesting. I'm trying to think. Uh, one of the first shows I was asked to participate as part of the creative team, which was so thrilling to me because I'd always, you know, having been a coach for so long, I thought, oh, how do I excel beyond what I'm doing, even though I was absolutely happy and never, you know, steered off course with this career. But um, was I got a call from, it was a dual call from Jason Robert Brown and Tom Kitt, and they were working on 13, the musical, with like crazy talented teenage kids. And they were working out of town at Goodspeed. And they, was it Goodspeed? Yes. And, <laughs> hello, mind. Uh, so they said that the, it's challenging working with teens because they don't have the same sort of discipline and their muscles are just starting to kind of come about and settle in. Uh, would I come out to Connecticut and, you know, do a day there and sort of see what's going on and assess what's happening. So I did just that. And because when Jason Robert Brown and Tom Kidd call you, you just jump into a car and yes. go. <laughs> so I, I had an amazing day with three of the uh, the leads in the show and sort of saw what the problem was and identified it, spoke to them, the two of them, Tom and Jason. And lo and behold, they asked me to be part of the Broadway company as the coach to the kids. So I was not supposed to be at the theater as much as I ended up because no one knew that the guys, the boys in the company's voices were going to be changing mm-hmm. nearly every single week. So I spent a lot of time uh, just solving issues and solving problems and vocally making sure everyone was healthy from start to finish. And uh, that's where that all started. So then other shows came about and I was asked to come on board and just keep an eye on everyone and making sure everyone was healthy. Mm-hmm. And it was so thrilling because to be in a theater and be kind of at the beginning of the formation of, you know, the production was something I don't necessarily thought that was going to happen. And it ended up happening. And I'm kind of the only person doing it. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I, I would think somebody only hires you to do that if they completely trust your method and your results. But do you ever find yourself in an odd position of wanting to do things a certain way and the people running the show being like, no, that's not what we had in mind? Or I don't think I came upon that at all, honestly, because I think by the time I'm asked to come on board, they sort of know my work. And I normally, the one question I'll ask the music supervisor would be, in this show and in the score that you've you know either written or put together or arranged, um, what would you say would be the dominant vowel in this show? And they usually have the answer for me. And so mm-hmm. I usually base whatever template I'm going to use for that particular production on the vowel that is used most of the time in the writing. Uh-huh. So I kind of form things from there. But only on, honestly, one occasion did I come across any kind of um, resistance. And I, I won't name the show and I won't name the people, of course, but it was more like, there was a sense of the cast thought that they had it all together, they didn't need any help, but I was brought in anyway, and it was met with a little sort of resistance. Mm-hmm. So I had to sort of 
musically charm my way into them to sort of <laughs> say, this is what's happening and this is where I think you're holding tension. And as a result, you're working way harder than you have to. And that's why you're getting fatigued. So if we go backwards from that path, we could find a way for you to sing the show and not feel so exhausted at the end of one show, much less eight shows a week. Mm-hmm. Well, 13 especially makes me think of this because what an interesting challenge to have a cast whose voices are changing literally on a dime. Um, will will the composer ever like adjust the score because of a suggestion that you make? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly during 13, we had to make a bunch of key changes because of, you know, the boys, the voices changing. Mm. So that was sort of like, it had to happen. It wasn't more, it wasn't a discussion that needed to be argued. It was like, how much longer can this person sing in this key? Because obviously it involved the arrangements and what the band was playing on stage and having to like rearrange all the material. So Mm -hmm. it would be expensive for that to happen. But if it had to happen, it had to happen. Mm -hmm. Do you have any good Ariana Grande stories from 13? (laughs) Because that was her, her start, really. Yeah. I mean, she was she was obviously crazy talented and didn't really get to show much of what she was capable of during that show. Um, she got to have like one or two pretty cool riffs as part of like <laughs> one of the last numbers, I think. Um, but she was like an she was an innocent. She was she was an innocent in that um, it was her first experience professionally, really. Um, but she was learning the ropes and how things went, and you know what was possible for her career. Um, but she came from a very sophisticated family, so she had a lot of exposure to, you know, theater and music and all of that. But she was lovely to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're on a show like Hedwig and mm. you're kind of supervising things and it's a show where different leads are coming through, are you working with every new Hedwig as they come through? Indeed, I did. And it was so fun to hear about all those guys. The only all pers- amazing in different ways. <laughs> they are. They all. It was I was actually just writing about this. I was I you know what? I, I kind of like uh, retroactively journal when thoughts come to my head, like if I had a dream <laughs> about it or I woke up with a thought and I said, oh, you know what? I really miss my my the camaraderie with uh, Stephen Trask and John Cameron Mitchell because they really uh the three of us really championed the show together and the people who were coming into the show. And um, every time I would make a suggestion, this was funny. This was like total like prescience operating because I would say to Stephen Trask, you know, I have something in mind for Hedvig. <laughs> and I was wondering what you thought about this person. Somebody goes, who? And I said, what about, I said, somebody I worked with a really long time ago, but I've worked you know, consistently with him when he's in New York. What about Michael C. Hall? He goes, wait, what? <laughs> and I said, wait, what? And he said, we're already in contract with him. <laughs> Amazing. He said, Philosophy. I had no idea you worked with him. And I said, yeah. I said, I worked with him when he took over for Alan Cumming in Cabaret. Mm-hmm. That was my early beginnings with Michael C. Hall. This is before Dexter. This was before Six Feet Under, actually. Wow. Way before that. It was before it was right right as he got cast on Six Feet Under. But I was thinking, who could do it? Who's a really fantastic actor who could really, really sing, who has kind of like a darkness about him, even though he's not a dark person, but he is able to access darkness. Mm. So Stephen Trusk was kind of like who else do you have in mind? <laughs> that we probably already have their agents on the phone. Um, but Hedvig was so great because I'd already had such a established relationship for, at that point, at least seven years with Neil Patrick Harris. So we really put that show together together from the beginning mm-hmm. um, in terms of like vocally what he would need, how to sing that really true rock style, rock, punk rock and rock punk style without hurting himself because he was always doing things very mellifluously and always, you know, <laughs> singing, you know, lovely and light. And, you know, even with the musical theater stuff he did at the Tonys, mm-hmm. it was still presentational musical theater. So this was really hardcore. So I just basically got myself, you know, in with him with the rigorous exercises that we'd have to do in order for him to stay healthy yet be able to like I call it honk to really like honk out the rock stuff and yet not and not feel like he had to hold back at all and not feel like he had to protect himself but really give it to the audience but also feel like his vocal muscles were being you know mindful and responsible mm-hmm. have you always been a fan of all kinds of music because I can imagine 
Broadway person singing in the style of punk rocker could be very horrible. And he was like completely convincing to the point where I was like, how does he not shred his vocal cords every He night? never shred his vocal cords. He didn't miss a show yeah. the entire time. He did seven shows a week, but never missed a show. Well, here's my funny little quip with that. I mean, I was a very dedicated voice student mostly <laughs> to a degree because there were times where I just was not feeling the Italian arias prior to my voice lesson. So I would go into the you know uh, practice rooms before voice lesson and there were times when I thought, today I'm going to warm up to the entire score of the Who's Tommy. <laughs> and then I go into my voice lesson and she said, oh, you've been practicing all week. I can really tell. <laughs> and that... What I thought about that was, not like I pulled the wool over my voice teacher, but I actually thought that I actually was singing with joy and with abandonment, and I felt like you know it was a music that I really loved, and what it did for me was it opened me up, it opened my spirit up, it opened my soul up, and obviously follows the voice, so that was that. And I have days where I'd sing all Carol King or all Joni Mitchell, and occasionally I'd sing an Italian aria. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Oh, I mean, you you must have to keep up with current music because, I mean, to uh, segue very smoothly into Ben Platland, um, I mean, I think one of the many striking things about Ben's performance, and I'm sure some of this is just intrinsic to his voice on its own, is that he sings in the way that pop singers today sing. Like, he does not sound like a musical theater performer doing pop. And part of that is, I think, the score being very genuine mm -hmm. um, and coming from that place. But, uh, I mean, you, mu you must have to have a sense of, like, what the radio sounds like now. Yeah. Um, do I listen to everything at all times? No, but I, I make myself aware, and I try... <clears throat> pardon me. I try to... I think just we're in the world and music is surrounding us and whether we listen to it on YouTube or we listen to it on iTunes or we listen to it as it comes at us, you know, on television or we're in the car and listening to, you know, Sirius XM or Pandora or all of that. I try to keep listening to all different song styles. So when someone says, um, we're going to write this score in the way of like Charlie Puth or or something like that, um, mm -hmm. I'd be able to say, OK, I get the gist of you know what you're writing and how you want it delivered. Um, I don't necessarily, much like becoming a coach when I was so young, I don't necessarily think that I have to like study music. I feel like it's just, it kind of surrounds me and I don't reject it. I just kind of let it kind of wash over me, yeah. which I think all of us do nowadays. I think we, we're hit with so much music. You know, we walk into a shop and there's music playing. We kind of go, oh, who's that? Mm -hmm. Well, I, and that seems pretty parallel to your technique too. I would think that a lot of aspects of the way you teach correct me if I'm wrong, have to do with just like go with it, not like think really hard about where this one sound is coming from, because then I would think it can start to sound a little studied and pained. Yeah, I, I feel like I really want to first invest in knowing the person with whom I'm working and what their voice does before I even say anything and get a sense of their expression um, and then sort of say, this is going to help, and this is going to be preventative. Um, because if we're talking about Ben Platt and, and people in his caliber, there are so few, um, <laughs> he was already, he was born that way. So I wasn't basically going, I'm going to create 
this spectacular voice for Ben Platt in order for him to sing Dear Evan Hansen. But I was working with Ben before he did Dear Evan Hansen. I've been working with him since he was 17. Oh, wow. And, uh, and was, you know, just starting out in New York. And then I worked with him when he did Book of Mormon. So he was singing musical theater, which has a pop kind of quality to it, but it's musical theater, I think, yeah. Book of Mormon. And um, we knew we had to... Um, because the emotional component of that role was so deep and fraught and his physical body was going to have to be so slumped over in shame. And I believe also that the character is going through so much and there's so much glottal stops and quirks to the speaking voice. We had to just make sure that when he did sing, we had alternate postures for him to actually like allow himself to get into so he could still do exactly what he wanted to do for the character not at the expense of trashing himself vocally mm-hmm. well i i spoke to noah galvin on the podcast recently and i think love him i think he was the one who brought up the idea of like crying and singing at the same time these are like complete opposite impulses <laughs> like how how do you coach someone and how to cry and sing at once well and Ben and I have obviously talked about this for years now since I've been working with him since Evan Hansen was just an idea and Ben Spassick's had. Um, yeah, when when you're getting emotional, when we get emotional in real life, we get very locked up in our throat. We get very, and then we cry. We kind of hold our breath and then we cry. So, and then when you have, on top, on top of that, you have mucus, you know, culminating inside your sinuses. So it kind of shuts everything down at the same time. So we had to find a way to kind of get breath to come in and actually not stop before the crying happened. So it was literally instead of breathe, hold your breath and then cry, it was literally like cry. It was just let it out and then let the emotions go. Don't, because a lot of times when I think when we cry or we get upset, we almost don't want to let it go. We want to hold on to mm-hmm. it first before we let it out. So there's almost a withdrawing before you release what you need to say or sing. So we had to go completely in that realm of breathe, go. And he has such resources to tap into when it comes to those kind of emotions. I mean, I watched a lot of the tech rehearsals when they were doing light cues for the show and he could bring what you saw on stage up for every take they did. That's crazy. I was like, where does that reservoir come from? (laughs) He's just, he's extraordinary in that way. Well, it's, I mean, it's clear talking about this that there's like such a strong psychological component to what you do. Like, I mean, you must find yourself being almost like a therapist to these people. I should get an honorary doctorate yeah. and perhaps postdoc. <laughs> I think it's mostly, I mean, I, people have asked me, how did you become who you are? And I said, you know, I think most of it is being a really good listener and being by nature an empathetic person mm-hmm. and hearing what people have to say. When I meet people for the first time in my studio, I do an intake which is really just a kind of a chat to say, tell me about your voice, tell me about your history. And yeah, I'm taking information down, but mostly I'm hearing how they're saying what they're saying and how they're expressing themselves and um, what their voices do when they're talking about a certain topic. So I have a sense of like where they go and maybe what the singing voice is going to do and how it's going to react to particular material. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about Dear Evan Hansen makes me think of, I mean, when you saw that score for the first time and everything he had to sing and that he's like on stage all the time. Nearly the entire show. What did you think when you first saw it? And tied to that, I'm sort of, it it occurs to me that so much about star performances these days and Niels plays into this too, is about endurance to me. Mm -hmm. It's about like being a complete tour de force from beginning to end of the show, not just having one 11 o'clock number. Um, So I was curious if that's something you've observed too and how you've seen the challenges facing star Broadway performers changing over the years as you've been doing this. Yeah, I think it gets more intense. The stakes keep getting raised. 
You know, Dear Evan Hansen won Tony for Best Musical. Someone's going to try to write something that's even more intense than that. So it's going to happen. It's probably being written as we speak in this room right here. (laughs) Um, But I think what ends up happening is with the kind of material that this is for, like you say, a star performance, the first thing that pops into my mind is discipline. Like, how are we going to make the person doing this understand that it's going to be no joke that they're going to have to like watch every single thing that they eat. They're going to have to make sure they get X amount of hours of sleep so that the larynx and vocal cords calm down and rest and their muscles and bones and their head and neck let go and relax um, only to get up and have to do the same thing again the next day. But if you keep, if you do that and then you go out and you're hanging out in bars and hanging out and talking or going to loud restaurants or eating foods that don't digest easily, that's going to kick back up and you're going to realize, oh, I can't sing this as well. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be mucus in your body for different reasons than the emotions. <laughs> of it all comes this, back to mucus. What the really? song calls for. It does always come back to mucus and phlegm. Um, <laughs> um, but I think my work has largely been a supporter and somebody who says, I think if we look at this score and we look at you and your life, are you able to imagine yourself giving yourself entirely up to this production for the time that you're in it so that you will always be at the top of your game vocally? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the diet subject is something that people seem to always be fascinated by when it comes up in conversations on the podcast. Noah, in fact, talked about the fact that he was having a lot of trouble not eating pizza and that he, in part, doing the limited run of the show was like he was not sure he could not eat pizza for that long. (laughs) So, like, what are the basics of what people can and can't eat when they're performing? And why no pizza? (laughs) That is my favorite question to date. Okay, the pizza story and pizza always comes up. It's such a New York staple, and people can walk by a place, grab a slice, and like go to rehearsal, or at the end of their show, be like, oh, I did so great today. Let me stop off at, a, at my pizza joint and grab a slice. <laughs> well, this is my favorite story from of pizza. I remember Josh Gad, when I worked with him during Book of Mormon, um, he would come into his lessons, and he'd be like full of phlegm. And just so you know, phlegm is what comes up from the lungs. Mucus is what comes down from the nose. So he had mucus and phlegm. And I said, can I ask you uh, what you've been eating? And he hung his head and said, I have to admit that on my way home from the preview, I had to have a slice. I went, "Mm mm-hmm. He goes, maybe I had two slices. And I said, I said, okay, this is what it is about pizza and the voice. That's my new book. Pizza. Pizza and the Voice, the Liz Kaplan story. Pizza. (laughs) Completely. But you have white flour, you have tomato sauce, and you have cheese. So you have white flour that does not digest particularly well. And most people are either gluten intolerant or have a gluten sensitivity. And what happens when you eat white flour, when you have white flour, and you even might be not gluten intolerant or gluten insensitive, but if you're rehearsing and you're not getting rest and you're you know, rehearsing all day, doing previews at night, and then ultimately doing your show, the body just does get sensitive, even for a period of time. So you have white flour, then you have tomato sauce, which basically is like pouring battery acid down your throat. <laughs> and how good can that be? And then you have cheese, which is dairy, which most people cannot digest cow's milk because we weren't designed really to have the enzymes to break it down. Some people are blessedly able to, and I always want to study them, (laughs) Um, but most humans cannot do that. And then you put the three of them together. I said, Josh, that is the trifecta of what is not good for the singer. (laughs) The white flour, the tomato sauce, and the cheese. So I think, you know, I would say if you absolutely must have pizza, if your last show is a Sunday matinee, Go crazy, have pizza at night. That way you can digest it all during Monday and all during Tuesday before you have to show back up at the theater and do your show. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, now I, that's, pizza suddenly seems very unappetizing. But 
it's great if you don't have to sing. Yeah. But, it but I think also there's like there's something that happens with those three ingredients together are the worst. Individually, not great, but together, absolute Armageddon of the voice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's delicious, but I do always sort of live to regret eating pizza after I eat it because I just like never feel great. Oh, there's afterwards. nothing better. <laughs> there's nothing better. I mean, I search all the time for like, let me see if I could find gluten free and vegan pizza. <laughs> Without tomato sauce, <laughs> that I can, delicious. <laughs> and, and like, and then vegan cheese, ve- vegan non dairy cheese, which most people go like blah, like who would even bother? But it's like if you must have pizza, eat something, eat some sort of pizza that actually will actually digest. Are there are there other foods that we would not know about that are just like silent kryptonite for for vocalists? <laughs> silent kryptonite, absolutely perfect. Um, yeah, most of the foods that are the worst thing, obviously, as I said, is like tomatoes and the singer. Not a good idea. Um, certain citrus fruits just create so much acid in the body that the body can't balance the alkaline and acidity so it becomes too hyperacidic and that what it happens is the acidity affects the pH of the throat lining and the lining around the cords and the larynx so you actually feel it and a lot of people think that they have something wrong with their vocal cords and I go t- I go tell me what you've had to eat today and yesterday and as soon as they tell me I said it's nothing wrong with your cords. You feeling like there's something on them. It's just acid. And they'll clear their throat and clear their throat, which in and of itself starts beating the vocal cords up. Yeah. And what they're trying to do is get the acid off their cords. But basically, it's not something you can get off. You have to neutralize it. Mm-hmm. That's and well, I never really loved orange juice anyway. So I think I'm good <laughs> on that front. Um There is an aspect of your practice that I think is super interesting is the idea of working with people who can sing and like teaching them to sing in a different way, a la Neil in the show. And I heard that that was a thing with Hugh Jackman in The Greatest Showman, too, like teaching him to sing in a more pop way. So I was curious to hear about about his experience. Um, Neil or Hugh? Hugh, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, with Hugh, Benj and Justin, uh, I've, I have known Benj since he was a sophomore at University of Michigan, <laughs> and he used to come in summers and holidays and take lessons with me, so he was a voice student. Um, and... Um, so and that's really when I had heard about the what became Evan Hansen's story because he told me the story about this thing that happened in his high school. So I knew about it from way long time ago, which was kind of exciting when it it became what it became. Um, so Ben studied with me for a pretty decent amount of time, and then he had told Justin about me. So when they were working on different shows, Dogfight and uh, Christmas Story, I would be brought in to sort of help an individual performer. And so they just kind of had me in there corral of trusted people so when Evan Hansen came about and um, I was working with Ben they tell me that they were working on The Greatest Showman Mm -hmm. and then I remember getting a phone call I was literally right in between students and I saw it was from Ben so I said to the student just give me one minute I'll let him know that I have to call him back and so I said hey what's going on he said hey I'm here with the director of this film we're working on and how would you feel about working with Hugh Jackman? I went, continue. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, this is what's happening. I said, well, listen, I'm with a student. Let me call you back. And so I, you know, got back to him a little bit later and they had, you know, Hugh knew that they wanted to do this mega pop score to a traditional story. So Hugh came to me for a lesson. I want to say like a week later Mm -hmm. and uh, what I said to him was this. I said, listen, you have a really big voice and it's big and it's beautiful and it's super presentational. Since you're going to be in the recording studio with your voice for this show, for this particular film, we want to take the big roundness of your voice and just kind of like pare it down just a little bit so we get all the quality that is you, but focusing your voice a little bit more toward sort of a microphone sing as opposed to a audience sing. Mm -hmm. And um, he was astoundingly game. And at the end of our first lesson, he said, is that how we're going to work? And is that how lessons go with you? And I said, yes. He goes, I had so much fun. (laughs) And we saw each other probably like three or four times a week for the whole duration of the practice and leading up into all the workshops, which I attended, all of them, leading up to the film company giving the green light to go ahead. So I've worked with Hugh now three exact years. 
That's crazy. Well, again, I like I don't understand how your schedule works. There's like, <laughs> oh yeah, when do that, you sleep and eat? <laughs> I do sleep strangely, and I do eat, and I eat very healthily actually. But I kind of like I have to literally mark everything into my calendar, like eat, you know, yes. other things. <laughs> um, that was a crazy time when they were shooting, when we were recording and simultaneously rehearsing and then shooting the film. I was commuting to Brooklyn, pardon me, to uh, Dumbo, Brooklyn, where we were rehearsing three times a week. And it would take an hour to get there. And I'd work with Zach and Michelle and Hugh for at least three hours and then jump back in a car, come back and teach into the wee hours of the night. So I had to just keep rearranging my schedule and just try. I mean, I try to be really flexible in my mind about my schedule, but because it's like a tight ship, sometimes it's really hard, but I had to like let that all go. <laughs> Segway into Frozen. Yes. But, <laughs> but I had to let it all go and just basically go, I'm here, I'm teaching, I'm in a car, and then I'm rehearsing with all of them and teaching, and then I'm in a car, and then I go back and I teach, and that was life for a bunch of months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would think that having worked on Wicked would be good preparation for Frozen in terms of, you know, I think of Let It Go as being like doing Defying Gravity Absolutely. this week. <laughs> um, so how do you prepare someone to sing that eight times a week and not kill themselves? <laughs> well, have you seen Frozen yet? I haven't yet. I'm going next week. Oh, goody. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's magnificent. I'm newly obsessed. And, um, and Casey is a rock star, so I like I would trust her with it above anyone else. Yeah. But. You know, it, it's so interesting. Um, you know, Casey and I have been working together since she had done Murder Ballad some years Such ago. Such a good show. Such yes. a good show. Um, and so we've been, you know, working together since then. So it's like seven years almost. And... I knew her voice and she trusted me and I don't ever do anything in a lesson that is going to make anyone ever feel fatigued from warming up because I know that from my old old lessons myself that were taught me that I would have a voice lesson and I feel like wow I need to like take a nap and I am wiped <laughs> out and my voice feels tired the things I do are to just really line the voice up and sort of find the good pockets for the good notes. And Casey and I have always talked about how we're kind of technique nerds about that. And she knows that anything I'm going to do with her is to just set the voice up for success and to make sure that she can emotionally get the character across and vocally be able to do this particular role, incredibly difficult role. And she has so many songs um, with such power that we just broke everything down like intricately from the get-go from before she went to her final you know callbacks mm -hmm. when we knew it was a thing that she was being considered um we really got to it and spent a lot of time together well i mean I, when i think about the things that i've seen her do over the years too i remember even in hair thinking like how is she like singing i believe like every single night the way she does she has a tremendous gift she's a tremendous gift and i really believe that her empathy as a person and her humility and um, kindness really play a part in the warmth of her tone. Mm -hmm. And then sure. we get the instrument that's attached to it. So again, I'm not creating um, masterpieces from, you know, a lump of clay. I'm having people come to me who already have the gift. And I'm just mm -hmm. making sure that that gift is able to be maintained. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, on the subject of lumps of clay, which is the the last uh, tales of coaching that I'll make you talk about, um, <laughs> I you've worked on a lot of movies um, with people who I don't think are necessarily vocalists by training. Um, I just saw Coco a few weeks ago and cried for probably the entire last hour. Um, and As then did I. one of the few things that brought me out of my like complete like tear cyclone was I was like watching the credits and I saw like coach to Mr. Brat, right? And, it, and I was like, Liz Kaplan's here too. She's everywhere. <laughs> so were you coaching Benjamin Bratt? It was only a holograph of me. Or like, what, was the, what yeah, did you do? So, um, this was interesting. So it was about, I want to say a year and a half before we did the, even the recording of the songs. Uh, Kristen Lo Anderson Lopez and Bobby Lopez had me come in and work with Benjamin Bratt, who was going to be obviously one of the lead characters, and and really has to sing. I mean, really he's a has singer. to sing, and he really sang. Yeah, that was that was no joke. That was him. <laughs> um, but he 
you know, he was all, it was so funny. I was nervous to meet him because who doesn't have a crush on Benjamin Brad from Law and Order? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm going to get to meet Benjamin Brad. I watched him the entire time he was on Law and Order. He is a and handsome man. He's a very handsome man. <laughs> and, and kind and lovely to boot, which I love finding out when you meet somebody that you sort of feel like, oh, I hope that they're going to be. It's nice certain, when they're not monsters. <laughs> it's so nice when they're not monsters. Um, but uh, he was way more nervous to meet me than I was to meet him. It was so charming. He was practically sweating. And he's like, oh, you know, it's been a long time. It's been since, like, when I was studying at ACT, as you know, for my college conservatory, that I actually sang. And even then, I didn't do that much singing. I was mostly an actor. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, let's do some breathing exercises. And my, my goal with him initially, just at first meeting, was to get his physical and vocal and sort of spirit self to kind of calm down. So I, ho- I do this whole breathing series before every voice lesson with everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like doing yoga standing up. And I got him to like come back up standing up. And he was like, oh, what just happened? And I said, oh, we just kind of calmed everything down. And we got all your nervous systems kind of calm. And we kind of rebooted the adrenals and just got everything happening. And then I said, let's just do some vocalizing in here what notes you have and you know how it feels so I did a whole bunch of exercises with him and he started getting almost emotional because he's like oh this reminds me of like my former training (laughs) from so far back and I said yeah it's like all probably the similar language but just making sure it's like the right exercises for you so I worked with him and then I taught him remember me which is the song that just won the Oscar which is so amazing when when they won I thought I've been in on this since like it was sheet music that I was just throwing on the piano (laughs) like pieces of music I just had put in my printer um, and, and coached him on the song and working with him then it was about it may have been even almost close to nine months when I was in the recording studio and Pixar had called and said Bobby and Kristen highly recommended you we know that you had a session with Benjamin we'd like for you to be with us for the day when we're laying all the tracks down so we went into the recording studio and we spent an entire day together and working on the song, sometimes changing the key, sometimes just like adjusting certain things. But he did that all himself. It was it was teamwork, but it was sort of like us just making sure that certain things weren't making him nervous and mm-hmm. trying to get sounds out without nerves. Mm-hmm. So it was all inside him and it was just it was kind all of bringing it back him. out. And I was thrilled from watching like him go from literally feeling like a non-singer to somebody whose you know, movie just won the Oscar for Best Animated Film. That's, and the song won the best song. It's so emotional. I mean, it's people, it's, it has to be such a, and you do this with people in a very intensive time period. I mean, it has to be very emotional and considering everyone who studies with you is like a member of the Liz Kaplan cult. I mean, <laughs> it's so weird to hear I that. I mean, is it is it weird? Do people have separation anxiety from you like when a project is over or is it common that the project is over but people will stay with you and you'll just kind of keep the work going? Mostly, yeah. Mostly they'll they'll stay with me if there's another project for them to work on. Benjamin texted me last night. He said, Liz, through all of the Oscars and all that, he goes, I just wanted to remember that the work we did was so important to me and I hope you know how much I appreciate everything we did and um, it was it was such a pleasure to work with you. So I wrote back to him. I went, let's do another film. <laughs> I said, thanks for everything, and let's do another film. Um, I think the most important thing is to get the artist in a place where if something else comes up, that there's trust. And the trust is what will make somebody continue working with me. Um, I never plan on it. I feel like each thing is you know, an individual you know, job for me to accomplish and to make sure everyone is pleased with you know, the outcome. Um, And I think the cult thing is funny. I mean, listen, I've been teaching for 40 years and I have some same students from like the early days. Mm -hmm. I still teach people from like the mid 80s. Oh, my God. Who are still students who come in mostly mostly every week or at the absolute least every other week. Just people who are very loyal, clearly, but also disciplined and want to keep getting better. Well, it's a very hopeful story. <laughs> you know, the art goes on. Yeah, the art goes on. And nothing yeah. is ever really over when you're working well, I think, with someone. Especially with the singing voice. I mean, you know, with the, playing an instrument, if you let it go for a while, 
you know, you, you, you know, blow the dust off of it and you sort of like go, okay, let me see if I can get my, my, you know, my bow movement and my fingering and all that stuff together with a singing voice. It's the same thing. You have to sort of say, if I'm not using it, it's going to take a little while to kind of rev it up back again. But I think, um, that there's a lot to be said about, you know, I have people who come in for like, I call the 12,000 mile checkups where they're on the road on tour or they're a rock star and they're like touring around the world and I'll be like tell me how you're feeling they go I think I need a tune up and they come and they get tuned up so it's like I kind of pop in and out of people's lives as well <laughs> well thank you so much I could talk to you all day ditto uh, same here fascinating and uh, so nice to talk to you same here so good to meet you in person finally yay, yay. <laughs> and then fire As you just heard in the podcast, if you want to hear the results of Liz's vocal training, you can see the Oscar winning Coco or you can see the soon to open Frozen on Broadway. If you're a fan of Billboard on Broadway, please subscribe on iTunes. Give us stars and lots of nice reviews. Uh, If you would like to tweet at me. I'm at Rebecca Milzoff. You can always use hashtag Billboard on Broadway to talk about the podcast on the internets. And we will be back with another episode next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.